Why is what we teach and believe so important? Why do we spend so much time in the scriptures? These are really important questions. Because these are questions that each one of us have to ask. Because either what Jesus taught and what the disciples carried on was vitally important, or it's just some loose guideline. Because that makes a huge difference. Why do we spend so much time in the scriptures? It'd be so much easier just to say that, yeah, God loves everyone and um, he just wants you to be happy and wants everything to be easy in your life. We could pack this place easily. But then we would be proclaiming a wide way. It was not what Jesus proclaimed. That was not what the early church proclaimed. And so we need to examine ourselves. What do we believe and, and why? And does it matter? Does it matter for the rest of our lives? Because I and we have to answer to God one day. What did we do with our time here on earth? Were we faithful with the message that God gave us? Or did we do what was easy and what went along with the culture? And sadly, many Christians and churches will go along with what is easier for the culture or easier with our sinful hearts. But scripture very often challenges what makes us comfortable. Challenges what we think should be in our own minds. And we have to ask ourselves, do we submit to the truth of Scripture? Or do we make a God into our own image and a religion of our own making, picking and choosing the parts of Jesus that we like and do not like? Because very often the things that Jesus said are meant to make us uncomfortable. They're meant to make us uncomfortable in our worldly sensibilities. And this is one of those texts. So it's not going to be a long introduction, but I want you to think about that. Because we're going to touch on some things here that make many people very uncomfortable, but I can't escape it and I won't escape it. And not only will we not escape it, we're going to lean into it. This is one of those passages today that's going to help us to understand the nature of our salvation. And what could be more important than to understand who Christ is, what he came to do, how he saves us and what he saves us to, and for how long he saves us. So let's get right to it. Open your text. John chapter 6. Might be my shortest introduction ever. Don't get used to it though. Our text today is in verse 30 to 40, but I want to begin reading in verse 28 because it helps to bring us where we are in this conversation. And if you remember last week, we were coming on the heels of Jesus feeding the 5,000. They followed him to the other side of the lake and they want to hear more. Or maybe they just want to see more. They want to get fed more. What are you going to do next for us, Jesus? And here's where we find ourselves. Verse 28. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. You believe in him who he sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What works do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. 
All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. How blessed is it that we can call you our father. called Israel out of paganism and they chose to call on their fathers but through Christ we can call on our father and we come before you our father this morning maker of heaven and earth whose plan of redemption was secured before the foundation of the earth and its perfect plan he gave his people to his son He should come and lose none of them and secure them with his Holy Spirit. Our gospel is big and cosmic and wonderful. Father, Son, and Spirit glorifying. And through faith in Christ, we are brought into this eternal reality that we are his. And Lord, I just pray this morning that for believers, that we would be encouraged and emboldened and comforted by the assurance that we have in you. And for those who don't know you, Lord, may they see that there is no other assurance, there is no other hope, there is no other security, that they may run to you for food that never wears out and water that never runs dry, and that they trust in you and know that in you they will never be cast out. There's nothing that this world can do to take this from, take that from us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so what we're going to do this morning is going to walk through these initial verses pretty quickly, and then we're going to spend a lot of time on application at the end. All right, so first picking up in verse 30, we find ourselves in the middle of this conversation. And the words here of the Jews versus the words of Jesus are so important. So pay attention to the particularities here, but pay attention to the contrasts. Look in verse 30, coming on the heels of verse 28, where they say, what works must we do, plural? Jesus says the one work... Singular is to believe in me. How do they respond to that? Jesus says the one work is to believe. What's their response? Naturally, Jews seek signs, right? So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe? This right away should ring bells in our Sunday school education. Because what is the definition of faith? Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us the assurance, things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. They're saying, I will only believe if I see. That's not faith. That requires no faith if it's handed to you on a spoon. Requires no faith if it's do another magic trick for me, and then maybe I'll believe. Did they forget where they were yesterday? Did they forget why they crossed the the sea? Did they forget who they were talking to? Yes, they did. So they go on. What sign, what type of sign are they looking for? This is very particular as well. Look at the language here. Our fathers, this will come up later, ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So he equals Moses. So Moses gave them bread. What are you going to do? Our fathers, associated with their identity in their heritage our fathers ate the bread from Moses what are you going to do what can what can you add to your repertoire 
Mr. Messiah man, prove this to us. And it's interesting that you probably wouldn't know this, but the rabbis of the day taught that the Messiah would come and the Messiah would give manna just like Moses that would never wear out. And they were close, but as always, it fell short. It was too small. They were looking for manna, literal bread from heaven that would never run out. God's just going to feed us and keep us exactly where we are forever. Well, the bread from heaven is bigger and greater than what they could ever imagine, what the rabbis ever taught. Because in reality, manna, and there's this great definition of manna, manna in Hebrew means, what is it? So they're looking for something they had never seen before, they never have again, and they're just amazed at this bread from heaven that they don't understand. Then a bread from heaven that is greater that they still don't understand comes, and they're still looking to the shadow. Like all Old Testament shadows, they do not last. They will pass away. But the shadow is always to point to the reality. And Jesus, again, takes that shadow and he fulfills the reality. They're looking for physical bread. They're looking for temporary nourishment. But how does Jesus respond to that? Jesus then said, truly, truly, I say to you, pay attention. It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Remember before they said our fathers, the Jews appealed to the patriarchs. Jesus appeals to his father. Jesus makes a distinction. He doesn't say our father gave us the bread from heaven. He says my father gave us the bread from heaven because he knew their hearts. God, the father is not their father. They would never believe because if they wouldn't believe when Jesus was standing right in front of them, he's going to get there in a moment. They weren't going to believe. Jesus appeals to his father while they appealed, appealed to their fathers. I said, it is my father who gives true bread from heaven. And what is that bread? Verse 33. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So the bread of God is, is no longer bread. It's no longer manna. It's a person. And this is an amazing contrast because you're looking for something physical. You're looking for something that can't nourish you forever. But there is a person. There is a person that can nourish you forever. And then he's going to upset them even more. Just like God's bread from heaven, the manna came down and fed Israel. A person came down to feed the saints everywhere. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. This should make us think back to chapter 4. Remember in chapter 4, Jesus speaking to the woman at the well, describes living water to her. And what is her response? Well, I want that water. Their response here is, well, I want that bread. Still thinking too small, still thinking earthly. And now Jesus rocks them with this next statement. He responds to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. One of the strongest verses in all of scripture. We're going to break this down. I want to spend a little bit, a little bit of time here. The gospel of John is marked by these metaphorical I am statements. This is the first. I am the bread of life. What is the bread of life? Let's talk about it for a, a moment. What is bread? Bread brings nourishment and ultimately life. Uh, it's interesting reading the commentaries on this, and this is just a, a side note, that all of the commentators talk about everyone eats bread, and these are just 40, 50 years ago. This is before there's been a sensitivity and kind of a cultural backlash against bread, but even 50, 100 years ago, every commentator thought everyone just ate bread. 
So this is no longer as universal as a symbol as, as it used to be. But in reality, we're talking about food here. We're talking about bread that gives nourishment. We're talking about bread and food in general. And so even if the connection is lost, the application is still there. I am the bread that comes from heaven. What does it mean? Bread nourishes. At the very basic, like we talked about last week, we need food and water to live. This is at your basic nourishment, you need this. But also, bread can't give life forever. This is bread that continues to give life. This is not just bread that you'll eat for one day. It is bread of life and life everlasting. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall not thirst. You wouldn't get this in the English. But in the Greek, this is the strongest language that you can use. Whoever comes. Remember this phrase. We're going to break this down. Whoever comes shall never hunger, never thirst. We talked about faith just a moment ago. In Hebrews eleven six, where it says, Without faith it is impossible to please God actually ties all this together. So Hebrews 11.6 says this. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Remember last week where Jesus said, it's not the works that you do. The one work you can do is to believe in me. First, faith. First, believe in God. For whoever would draw near to God, here's Jesus talking about whoever comes to me, never hunger, never thirst, must believe that he exists. First, we must believe in him and that he rewards those who seek him. So faith is drawing near to God, believing in him, and rewards those who seek him. What is the reward here? The reward is you will never hunger, never thirst. This is powerful. Because this language in the Greek, it's the strongest negative you can use. Not that you will never kind of hunger. Never, ever hunger. Never, ever thirst. Never, ever. Well, what if never? Well, what about this? Never. If you come to me, whoever comes to me will never thirst and never hunger. You can't put a stronger stamp on this in the original language. Natural bread rids us of hunger for a time, but the bread of life satisfies forever and ever and ever. This is what Jesus is promising those who come to him. Not a bread that wears out. Not a bread that, that we can't continue to bring for ourselves. This is what communion symbolizes. My body, my blood broken for you. Not some weird symbol, but a proclamation of the body of Christ and the blood of Christ that will feed us forever. That a new everlasting covenant made in his blood, body broken, that when we eat of it, it feeds us and nourishes us forever, physically and spiritually. So is this literal? So you'll never hunger and never thirst. Is this only spiritual? I think it is. Think if you read the Sermon on the Mount, what does Jesus use to encourage them? One, he teaches them to pray. He teaches them to pray and ask for our daily bread, knowing that our Father gives good gifts and he will provide for us daily. And we talked about this last week when we talked about materialism and in, 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 our, in our guys' night. In Matthew 6, he talks about how much he cares for his children. Aren't you more valuable than the flowers? Aren't you more valuable than the birds? He feeds them. You don't think he'll feed you? He will most certainly feed you. This is literal. You will never hunger. You will never thirst as his people. You may not have all the luxuries you think you need, but your father will provide everything that you need. But most importantly, you will never hunger or thirst spiritually. 
There is a spiritual reality here. Augustine said that our soul is restless until we find our rest in you. Sheree set me up beautifully earlier. She didn't know I was going to say this. But every one of us knows what it's like before Christ to seek things that won't fill us up. To try to fill the desires and voids that we have within us with other things, with temporary things. And they leave us more hungry than when we came to them. They can never fill. They can, they can never satisfy us. But in a spiritual sense, when we eat of that bread, when we come to the bread of, of life, we come to the living waters, we will never hunger, never thirst, never, ever hunger, never, ever thirst. And what's even more amazing is to add on top of that, you have true rest, like Augustine says, but you also have new nourishment. This nourishment that you receive creates a desire in you. Now you hunger and thirst for righteousness. You get satisfied and you continue to be filled. This is like those of us who love food. You know, like the best meal you've ever had. Like, I wish I was not full. I wish I could have another stomach so I could keep eating this. Maybe I have a food idol. I'll repent of that later. But (laughs) my wife's nodding her head. But that meal that you wish you could keep eating over and over again, that is the bread that satisfies. That is the thirst that keeps us coming back to the things of God. I am being filled, having the best steak dinner I've ever had in my life, and it keeps coming. It's like Texas Day Brazil with, with a little green chip that just keep it coming. And you get this nourishment that continues to feed and nourish you for the rest of your days. And the more you seek it, the more you are satisfied. This is amazing news that we're given new desires, we're given new hearts, and we don't have to seek after things that can't fill us anymore. Never thirst, never hunger. Then he brings it back to his audience. Verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Just a few verses ago, back in verse 30, they say to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe? Here they are. They're asking for something additional to see. What sign do you give me? He's saying, I'm standing before you. The only sign you need is that I am the Messiah. I turned these couple loaves and fishes into a feast. I walked on water. You've heard the rumors. The rumors are true. I'm standing before you, and yet you don't believe. If you see me and don't believe, there's no hope. And now he begins to lean in. And now he, he opens the mystery of God's plan of redemption before us. Look at verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I want to spend some time here. I love this verse. This is a direct process. This is a salvation domino effect. Look at these details here. Without exception, all, meaning every one that the Father gives me, all the Father gives me, will come to me, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. There is a direct relationship between each one of these. The Father gives, those who the Father gives comes, and the Son will never cast out. Okay, what does that mean? What has been given to the Son is assigned and entrusted to Him. What does it mean that something is entrusted to the Son? Who better to explain that to us than Jesus Himself? Keep your finger here and turn to John chapter 17. I know you love John chapter 17 and the high priestly prayer. We'll probably mention it a few more times. And we'll spend a good amount of time on it when we get there. Probably sometime in 2020. (laughs) 
And all of you, I say this all the time. When we're in our Bible studies, the first thing I always tell you to look out for, repeated words. Let's read the first nine verses of the high priestly prayer and see what is repeated. Look at this theme here. In verse 1, Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all you have given him. In one verse, verse 2, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all you have given him. What do we see here about what's been given to the Son by the Father? One, it's under the authority of the Son, who has authority over everything. Two, they've been given to him by the Father. And then three, he will give life to all who have been given to the Son by the Father in his authority. Do you see a break in that chain anywhere? Absolutely not. Continue on. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. This is the Father giving The son work to do. This is a plan between the father and son. And now, father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Again, this is very particular. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. The ones, they were the fathers always. They were given to the son. And the good news is proclaimed to them. And manifested your name to them. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. There's a theme going on here. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And that they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world. But for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. Have you ever read that and meditated on what that means. The intimacy of what the father entrusted to the son and the security that they have within his hand is unshakable, irrevocable. All who are given to him will come. And all who come will never be cast out. An unbroken chain. Again, this is that same strongest negative in the Greek. All who come back in chapter 6 will never, ever cast out. Never, ever. You cannot come and be cast out. You cannot be from the Father and then all of a sudden not be. Never, ever. Just like you will never, ever thirst again. You will never, ever hunger again. You will never, ever be cast out again. Amen? Then the response is, well, only if we're good enough, right? Never. Well, only if I keep all of these things, right? Never. Only if I continue to believe, right? It's up to me and my free will, right? Never. There is no greater assurance than the emphatic words of Jesus Christ. You will never hunger, never thirst, and I will never cast you out. You cannot avoid this. And praise God that this is who saves us. And that this is what he saves us to. Somebody say amen. Now, now I want to just Address this for a moment. Because many people fight so hard against this. Many people ignore scripture to hold on to this guilt-ridden lie that those who the, the Father elects, the Son calls, and the Spirit seals could somehow overpower the will of God. 
How small do they think God is? How weak do they think God is? How much do they want to exalt man that our will could overcome the will of God? Jesus is now going to give us three verses on what the will of God is. This should be one of the most comforting doctrines, and theologically we call it the perseverance of the saints. That means that those who trust in Christ, those who are bought with his blood, those are his from before the foundation of the earth, will always be his, will never be cast out, and he will never lose one of them. They will persevere to the end because of Christ, not because of them. Because if it wasn't for God's work within us, none of us could ever earn or keep our salvation. And if people don't like this, they don't like the Father's plan, and Jesus is a liar. Anyone willing to make that statement? But he continues, and he explains this to us in further detail. Verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is why I'm here. This is the plan. My father's plan from eternity. Want to know what the father's plan is? I'm going to give some to the son. He will receive them from him. And the son will feed them. And the son will keep them safe. And the son will hold them in his righteous right hand. And no one can ever snatch them out of it. This is my father's plan. So if you trust in me, this is what you're trusting in. And he goes on, and he describes that plan in verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that was given me, but raise it up on the last day. Lose nothing. The Father has them, entrusted them to the Son. If we can't be entrusted to the Son, we have no hope. But if we are entrusted to the Son, he will never cast them out. He will not lose them. Does this spark anything in your minds? Two weeks ago, we were... In the feeding of the 5,000. Look at verse 12, same chapter. What does Jesus say after he multiplies the bread and the fish? Look at verse 12. What does, he, what does he tell them? Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. This is not just an ordinary sign. This is Jesus giving kingdom realities here. I'm going to take your little efforts, your little bread and your little fish, and I'm going to multiply them and have 12 baskets left over. I'm going to create a new Israel. And every fragment that I create will not be lost. Not one crumb will be separated from my plan. I will save everything. Think of how clear that is now that you look back. Lose none. This is meant to be an encouragement. This is meant to be an encouragement. Because the son has worked in you. You are his. And nothing can separate you from his love. Those he gathers and multiplies, he never loses. None. No one. I'm going to get to why this is important in just a moment. But I want to break this down and we'll spend some time talking about it. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. The beauty of Christ's resurrection, the beauty of our Savior being risen from the dead means our resurrection. I will raise them up the same way I was raised up and went to the right hand of my father. I will raise them up with me. Not only am I saving you and preserving you from your own sins, but I'm going to raise you up. I'm going to glorify you the way the father has glorified me. This is another amazing benefit of the gospel, that his resurrection means our resurrection. Amen? Amen. 
for this is the will of my father. You notice these last three verses. It is the father's will, the father's prerogative. Jesus is saying, I am completely obedient to my father. You should be obedient to me. This is the father's will. In case you forgot it, I'm going to tell you for the third time. This is the will of my father, not your father's, my father. That everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise them up on the last day. There's a different word here in the Greek. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son. Earlier, the Jews were looking to see. It's a normal word for sight. What can we see? What can our eyes take in that confirms you are who you say you are? But this is a different word in the Greek. This is more behold, to look on and take in, to to truly see with open eyes. Those who see the son, those who behold him, they shall have eternal life and he will raise them up. Remember the seal last week? The son is the seal of the father. The father's plan is sealed with the son. The person and work of Christ seals the redemptive plan of the father throughout all eternity. So now I want to continue with what this means for the perseverance of the saints. Because so many teach that our salvation is in flux. And they use it as a tool for manipulation. Keeping people in a constant state of fear of being one sin away from losing their salvation. Being one sin away from being separated from God and being in constant fear. We sing words like, I am no longer a slave of fear because I'm a child of God. You can do that because you are adopted into a family that will never, ever cease. And you are sealed with the work of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. This is horrible when people use this manipulation to keep them doing things, to keep you into a system that cannot give you life because you are constantly trying to maintain your own salvation. And this spits in the face of Jesus himself. If Jesus says, I came down from the Father so that I may keep the ones the Father has given me and I will never lose them. Someone says, no, they can be lost. What are they saying to the work of Christ? God's prerogative, God's plan of redemption and grace is above anything we can ask or imagine. And it is undeterred from human will. Human will cannot change the plan of God. It cannot revoke what God has commanded. And those who try to say that our will is higher than his are blaspheming. Isaiah 55, my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Who do you think you are to say that you can overcome my will? I'm going to tell you why I'm getting so worked up with this. Because I know so many people who have been raised Roman Catholic Seventh-day Adventist, or other work-based theologies that will tell you that you can lose your salvation at any moment and you need to keep earning it. And you're constantly burdened with their own sin and they don't know grace because grace doesn't exist where works is needed to earn salvation. Let me give you a couple examples. Martin Luther, the great reformer, there are stories told of before his conversion as a priest. This is a man who locked himself away all day to study the scriptures and, and, and taught them day after day after day, was so burdened with his own sin. After he left confession, he didn't make it halfway out the door before he was back again. Again and again, even his thoughts failed him. And so eventually the priest had to kick him out of confessional. All right, you're done. You've confessed enough. That was the burden that led him to saying, I can't do this. And the beauty of the words in Romans 1, 16 and 17 is by faith, 
for faith. You are saved. The righteous shall live by faith. I have a good friend who told me about being raised Roman Catholic and talked about how her whole life she was burdened with her own salvation and her own inability to maintain and save herself. She told me that she prayed that if the Lord was going to take her, if she was ever going to get hit by a bus, that she'd get hit by a bus right when she came out of confessional so that she would never be more holy than she was when she walked out of confessional. She told me that I can't take communion because I haven't atoned for all of my sins. I haven't asked for forgiveness for every sin that I've ever had. There is no freedom in that. There's no grace in that. And then to hear that, no, Christ is sufficient. Yes. Trust in him. His work is, is complete. There is freedom in that. Spoke to another man who is um, Seventh-day Adventist, knew his scriptures really well. But we got down to the issue of, do you have assurance? Can you know that you are saved? He did not. Over and over again, I point him back to the scriptures and the promises of Christ. But I must keep doing, I must keep doing, I must keep doing. And I told him, I said, listen, at the end of our conversation, the one thing I want you to know is that in Christ you have assurance. I want you to walk out of this room with complete confidence. Do you trust in Christ? Do you know that if you walk out of here and you get hit by a bus, that you will have assurance in Christ? He said, no. I said, I said, why not? He said, because, well, hopefully I've done enough good deeds today to maintain my salvation today. It's heartbreaking. There's no life in that gospel. That is not a gospel. That's not good news if it still leaves the burden on our shoulders. One more. Another friend of mine called me this week and uh, she told me, she said, I want to thank you for sharing the grace of God with me. Been a Christian for 25 plus years and I've been in a lot of churches, Bible school, heard all kinds of things, but I've never understood God's grace. I've always been burdened with my own inability to maintain my salvation. Thank you for helping me to rest in the finished work of Christ. As a pastor, it burdens me so much because I look around this room. I've had this conversation with many of you. Many of you are burdened with your own sin and your own inability to continue up this this charade of I'm good enough to maintain my salvation. That's why if people ignore this doctrine, it is so damaging because people are walking around every day burdened with their own sin. People are walking around every day wondering if they could really be saved because of how wicked they are. And you are wicked. Trust me, present company included. But it's not up to your righteousness. It's up to the the love of the Father who gave you to the Son. And by faith in the Son, and you come to Him, He will never cast you out. You will never hunger. You will never thirst. This is emphatic. This is strong. You can bank on this. I want to ask you a question. I want you to have this assurance. Do you? Do you have this assurance? Have you looked on Jesus with faith? Do you know that the father gives you to him? He will never cast you out. Do you know that? Or are you still hungry? Are you still thirsty? Are you still trying to work your way into his grace? Turn from the bread that does not satisfy. Turn to the bread of life. Believe in him. 
Christ bore the burden of our sin so that we can rest when he says it is finished. Those who eat of me will never hunger. There are so many people who are effectively saying, I know you said it's finished, but I don't think it is. Look back at verse verse 28 and 29. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus says, believe in me. How many people are still trying to earn it? How many people are still trying to say, I know you said I am sufficient enough. Believe in me. I will never cast you out. But it can't be that easy. It can't be that good. So people ask, why does it matter what we believe? Why does it matter what we, what, what we teach? Why do we have to debate about it? Why do we have to talk about all these particular doctrines? Do they matter? Let me ask you, listening to the stories of those people, does it matter for our lives if we know if we can have assurance in Christ or not? It does matter. Because many people say, well, isn't it just enough to say that Jesus saves and believe in him and that's it? Can we just talk about the comfortable parts of the gospel? I mean, those things are true. Believe in him. Trust me. Don't ever hear me say that that's not true. But does that have any effect on your life? Does that change when you wake up every morning? Are you still burdened with your sin or is Christ burdened with your sin? There are many people who still will go to their death saying that the will of man is stronger than the will of God. How ridiculous is that? And all of the, pr- the, the promises of the gospel are no good. New creatures do not go back to being old creatures. If you are made new, you are not made old again by the, your, your own decisions. Butterflies cannot become caterpillars again. The bride of Christ is brought into union with him. There is no divorce. Because he brings them in and he officiates the ceremony. He puts the ring on the finger and he seals it with the Holy Spirit so it can never be separated again. And as faithful believers, we want you to know this. I want you to know this. We want people to know this. Jesus himself said there's no expiration date on this. Because those the Father gives me, I'll never cast them out. What's he say at the end of verse 40? I will raise them up on the last day. You're mine the whole way. To the very end. There's There's a natural question. Okay, maybe you're teaching something that's different than Scripture. Is there anything else in Scripture that gives us assurance? And I'm glad you asked. Up on your screen, Jeremiah 32. We're going to go through these quickly, so Julian, you got to stay with me, man. All right, Jeremiah 32. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. If all of the heart and soul of God is put into something, it's going to happen. Next one. Lamentations chapter 3. We know this from the great hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says the soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. Whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Ezekiel 34. I love this. I'm going to lean into this one. We read this this morning. Listen to the repetition of God here. Ezekiel 34, 11 through 16. It is good. All right, Ezekiel 34, starting in verse 11. For thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. 
As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out of the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them into the own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and all the inhabited places of the country. And I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong. I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. That is the bread of life. I'm not done. Isaiah 51. (laughs) Isaiah 51 verses 5 through 8. Isaiah 51, 5 through 8 says this, My righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the people. The coastlands hope for me, and my arm they will wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens, and look to the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will last forever. And my righteousness will never be dismayed. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose hearts is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. I could go on and on and on and on. Great Commission, Matthew 28. We know the Great Commission. But we don't read what sets up the Great Commission and what closes the Great Commission. And Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You know why we can evangelize? Because it's in Christ's authority. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. How do we know that we can share the gospel? How do we know that we can constantly do it? Because he's with us to the end of the age. John chapter 10. Oh, I love John chapter 10. We're, we're going to spend some time there too. Look at these words. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. If you don't trust me, trust my father. If you're mine, you are his. Romans eight thirty eight. We love this because it's the love of God. For I am sure That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. Last and not least, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. I know I'm speaking to the choir for many of you, but I want you to be encouraged. I want you to know where to find these things in in Scripture. I want you to know how to encourage others and encourage brothers and sisters in Christ. This is not me yelling at you. This is a pep rally. We should walk out of here praising God because of our salvation in Christ. And real quickly, uh, to conclude, I hope this is an encouragement to you, really. I hope those of you who are in Christ Jesus are encouraged. I hope this drives you to look at our Savior and rest in him. Be still and know that he is God. Rest in our God. He is the bread of light. Eat. Never thirst. Never hunger. Never be cast out. Those of you who 
do not know him. Those of you who are still trying to earn your salvation, those of you who are still far from Christ, those of you who have not believed on the Son, those of you who can't say, Lord, take me now because the work is done, rest in him, trust in him, run to him. If you come to him, he will never cast you out. And I want nothing more than for you to have this assurance in Christ Jesus and live like it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this good news. This is why we are people who tell. Because this is our salvation. Before the foundation of the earth, you knew us. You knew our sins. You knew we would fail. We would never choose you. But you chose us. You cared for us. You sent your son for us to die for us so that we could be raised to new life in him. And to have the assurance that those who are his will always be his will never be cast out because he has said it. Thank you, Lord, for this. And I just pray this morning that we are encouraged, that we are empowered, we are emboldened by the Holy Spirit with this such great a salvation. We live like children of God, proclaim the blessed assurance that we receive and sing the praises of our Savior and what he's done for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.